0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations.
2: This archival episode of Design Matters was recorded in November 2016. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Cindy Gallup about her career in advertising and about the trouble people have communicating about sex.
3: People therefore find it bizarrely difficult to talk about sex with the people they're actually having it with while they're actually having it.
2: Here's Debbie Millman. Cindy
1: Gallup has said of herself, I like to blow shit up. I'm the Michael Bay of business. That may be true, but it doesn't describe all the things she has built in her career. She used to work in advertising, and now she runs her own brand and business innovation consultancy. She started Make Love Not Porn, a video sharing site that shows how real people have sex to counter the cliches of hardcore porn. She also started If We Ran The World, a site designed to turn good intentions into action. She's a fierce feminist warrior and she's here to talk about her extraordinary career. Cindy Gallup. welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. I'm thrilled to be here. Cindy, is it true you have an entirely black apartment?
3: Not anymore. (laughs) Oh, it isn't true. So tell, tell, do tell. So it used to be true in that for 10 years I lived in the black apartment, and it was indeed all black because my overall brief to the designers of it was... When night falls, I want to feel like I'm in a bar in Shanghai, Ah. Shanghai being one of my favorite cities and the Glamour Bar in Shanghai, which is no longer, unfortunately, open, being one of my favorite bars in the world. And the designers came back and said, here's our vision for that. all Wall, ceiling, floor, carpet, everything all black. And I went, "Ah!" and they said, "No, no, no, it's large enough to take it. We'll paint it gloss black and we'll light it so the light reflects off the paint so it's not oppressive and it'll make all your art and belongings really pop. And it totally did because people would visit me and they would have no idea I lived in an black apartment until I told them. So that was great. But I actually sold the black apartment last year and I bought instead um, the Sky apartment. And the Sky apartment, like the black apartment, is a complete fixer-upper because the black apartment was 3,800 square feet of raw space in the old YMCA on West 23rd. And in fact, the fun thing about that was I bought the front half of the sixth floor of the Y which is where the Y used to have their indoor pool in the back half. So my apartment was the men's locker and shower rooms at the YMCA. I kind of love that, Cindy. I, I literally live where village people wrote the song about. <laughs> so, So... I I wanted to find somewhere equally fun to live in. So I totally lucked out because um, I found a triplex penthouse on Fifth Avenue with three terraces, amazing views, and huge amounts of outdoor space that had not been touched in 30 years and was being lived in by a hoarder. <gasps> Bargain! <laughs> so we're good. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, you were born in
1: Amersham, Buckinghamshire, and your full name is Lucinda Lee Gallup. Your father is English and your mother Malaysian Chinese. How has this influenced you?
3: I guess I would say that I regard myself very much as a global citizen. I do feel British, which is my actual citizenship. But, you know, I was born in the UK. When I was six, we moved to Brunei and Borneo. Um, so I grew up in Asia. We traveled around a lot. I came back to the UK for school and university. You know, worked in London, um, worked in Singapore, have traveled all over the world for business. and so I, I consider myself a global citizen. I' like to think I bring a global perspective to everything I do.
1: You were the oldest or are the oldest of four daughters. Are you all very similar? Are you very different? What is the range of Gallup sisters?
3: It's probably best demonstrated by what we all do. So my next sister, Annabelle, she is an enormously well-known um, Indonesian academic. She is the curator of the Southeast Asian section of the British Library. If you Google Annabelle Gallup, you will find vast amounts of entries. She specializes in antique Malay manuscripts and seals. Um, and she is married to a conductor of music and they have two sons. My sister Eve is an oncologist, um, so she does phenomenal work in the area of cancer and cancer research, and especially as a paediatric on- oncologist. And she is married to a Welshman, lives in Cardiff. She has um, four children. And my younger sister Melanie is the European Executive VP of Sales for Calvin Klein Underwear and Swimwear Ooh. at PVH. <laughs> so, uh, and, and she's married to Mark, who's wonderful.
1: You studied English Literature at Somerville College at Oxford University and received two master's degrees, one from Oxford University in English Language and Literature and another from Warwick University in Theatre of the European Renaissance. I understand you were in love with the theatre and you started your career as a theatre publicist. What were your ambitions back then?
3: Well, I fell madly in love with theatre at Oxford, which has a very thriving student drama scene. And I did everything. I wrote, acted, directed, stage managed. And I decided, as you do at that age, all I want to do is work in theatre for the rest of my life. And I know I wasn't good enough to be an actress or director, but um, I used to draw a lot when I was younger. And so at Oxford, I got pulled into designing theatre posters for friends. And from there, I got pulled into actually promoting their shows, and I really enjoyed that. And I thought, gosh, I bet it's a lot easier to get a job in theatre doing this than it is to act or direct. And I was absolutely right, because um, I never had any problems finding, you know, a job doing publicity and marketing in theatre, and I really enjoyed it. So that's what I did. I understand that at the
1: time, after giving a tour of the Everyman Repertory Theater in Liverpool, a woman approached you and said, Young lady, you could sell a fridge to an Eskimo, wherein you decided that the universe was telling you to try something new, and that something new was advertising. Why advertising?
3: Well, funnily enough, um, the careers office at Oxford had said to me, you should go into advertising. And I gone, no, 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 I want to, I want to work in theatre. But after several years in theatre marketing of earning chicken feed and working 24-7, I began thinking more about advertising. And when that woman said that to me, you know, it really crystallized the fact that my skills marketing theatre were eminently transferable into advertising. And so that's what I decided to do.
1: The mid-80s London ad world was a real hotbed of creativity, and I read that it wasn't too big a leap to go from the glamour of theatre to the glamour of advertising. How did you get your first job in advertising?
3: Well, first of all, I should say, by the way, that advertising was way more glamorous than theatre. There was nothing glamorous about working in theatre whatsoever. But the answer to how I got my first job in advertising is with extreme difficulty, so, first of all, I tried applying for jobs based on my experience in theatre. And I found myself in that cleft stick, which is, you know, you can't get a job because you have no experience in advertising, but you can't get experience in advertising unless you get a job. So, then I gave up trying to do that and I went back to the very beginning and I applied for graduate trainee entry-level schemes, which are what um, a lot of advertising agencies offer students fresh out of university. And the very first graduate trainee entry-level job I got offered was for an agency called Ted Bates in London, 1985. And I just grabbed it. You know, it was a job. So I took that. Your first assignment at
1: Ted Bates was to work on the DHL Courier and Mars Confectionery accounts. And you've said you had a whale of a time during your first two years in advertising. What made it such a whale of a time?
3: I was... Coming into a graduate entry-level role at the very bottom of the hierarchical ladder, having already been working for several years, there was something enormously liberating about going right back to the beginning, running around making the coffee with very low expectations. I mean, you're being trained. That was fantastic. It was like a second childhood. There was also the fact that, you know, back in London in the 80s, advertising was an enormously glamorous industry. It was the one that everyone wanted to work in. And so, you know, throughout London at every agency, there were a whole bunch of these young people and we would all get together. We had a softball league. So the social life was fantastic. It was also London in the late 80s, you know, the heavy drinking days of advertising, the British equivalent of the three martini lunch. Oh, I was going to say and, four martini lunch. <laughs> <laughs> that too. And for someone who'd come from poverty stricken theatre, boy, oh boy. I mean, the expense accounts, the lunches, the dinners, the parties, you know, it was fantastic. I loved it.
1: You stayed at Ted Bates for several years. The firm was ultimately acquired by Saatchi and you ended up at JW Thompson, you didn't last long at J. Walter Thompson. I think six months after you joined, Gold, Greenlees, Trot invited you to join, and you did. And I read that the first day you joined the agency, you felt like you'd been sleepwalking at JWT. What was so different about GGT?
3: Back in London in the 80s, GGT was one of the hottest agencies in town. It was started by Mike Gold, Mike Greenlees, and Dave Trott. And it was doing phenomenal work. And these are very London or rather UK terms, but it was the wide boy agency. And by that, I mean, you know, Dave Trott was a cockney. It was a very sort of gritty agency. And interestingly, it was a very male agency. It prided itself on its macho culture. Jim Kelly, the managing director, used to like to say, at GGT, we stab you in the front. And (laughs) uh, and essentially, they suddenly realized one day that they were all guys. And so in a pretty typical fashion, they went, oh, my God, we need to hire some women. So they instantly hired three female account managers of whom I was one. And someone who subsequently became my best friend, Kate Bristow, was another. And I'd been at J. Walter Thompson six months. I was perfectly happy. And I'd interviewed at GGT before I went to JWT. And the head of account management called me and said, listen, you know, the only thing wrong with you when we interviewed you was you'd only worked at one agency and that wasn't enough experience. Now I've worked at two. You know, that's great. Um, Come over, have a job. We don't need to see you again. And so That's I
1: wonder, wow, which was nice. <laughs> That's
3: unprecedented. Yeah. But, but obviously I agonized because I went, oh, my God, I can't leave a job after only six months. And then my friends said to me, Cindy, this is GGT. You'd be mad not to. And so I resigned from JWT, who were very nice and very complimentary and very sorry to see me go. And I joined GGT and it was just the energy, the dynamism, the commitment to great work. It was fantastic. I absolutely loved it.
1: All right, let's talk about Bartle Bogle, Hegarty. The first time you were headhunted for a job there, you were hesitant to join. Why?
3: Um, No, it was actually the other way around. They turned me down. They
1: turned you down. Yep. Yep. Why?
3: So back when I was looking to leave Ted Bates, I interviewed at BBH as an account manager. And BBH then was also one of the hottest agencies in London. Um, They'd launched their Levi's campaign in 1985 with that very memorable Nick Cayman laundrette ad. And so I was gagging to work at BBH. And the interviews went frightfully well. And they were talking about, you know, my company car and all of that. And then the headhunter called me and said, Oh, Cindy, there's just one more thing you have to do. It's, It's a pure formality. But Nigel Bogle likes to meet everybody that they hire into account management. And I went, okay. So I went over to BBH, and I met Nigel Bogle. And it was one of those interviews where the moment I crossed the threshold, it all went horribly wrong.
1: Why? What happened?
3: Um, I can't remember the details, but we just did not hit it off. Um, I knew when I left that room that I was not going to get the job. I didn't. So several years later, I'm at GGT, and a headhunter calls and says, you know, Cindy, I've got this great job at BBH. And I went, oh, yeah, no, 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 they don't want me. And she went, no, 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 but, you know, there's a new head of account management now. You know, I think they'd really like you. And I went, Well, OK, fine, put me forwards, but they won't want me. So she put me forwards, and they were interested. And so I went and had some more interviews, including with the people who'd met me before. And then I got the call saying, now it's time to go meet Nigel Bogle. Grand <laughs> I went, Grand right, I I went right, right, it's all over, you know, but fine, OK, let's get this farce over. Let's just go. And, um, and so I went over and I met Nigel. And it was a very different meeting because he came into the room waving a piece of paper. And he said to me, I hope you're impressed with our filing system. And I thought it was my resume from the time before. But actually, when he showed it to me, it was a letter I'd written from the Everyman Theatre years previously when I'd been asking agencies for jobs before I went the graduate trainee scheme route. And I suddenly remember that actually of all the agencies I wrote to, Nigel Bogle had been the only principal who wrote back a really nice letter as opposed to a form letter and said, I'm terribly sorry. We're very new. We can't take people, inexperienced people. Um, But best of luck. And he said to me, You know, um, everyone here wants you to join us. I'm being blamed as the only person who stopped me joining us last time around. And um, we're going to offer you a job, and I hope you take it.
1: And you did. And and I
3: did, yeah. And
1: you began running large accounts like Coca-Cola, Ray-Band, Polaroid. In 1996, you helped start the Asia-Pacific branch of BBH. You founded the U.S. branch of BBH in 98, served as the chair of the board. In 2003, you won the Advertising Woman of the Year Award from Advertising Women of New York. How did that happen? You went on this incredible run. You got there and exploded. How did that happen?
3: Quite honestly, Debbie, I haven't the faintest idea because I just had my head down working really, really hard. I mean, that's all I was doing. Starting up an advertising agency in the world's toughest advertising marketplace was a lively old ride. Employee number two after me, Ty Montague, um, who was my executive creative director, had a great answer in the early years when people would say to us, so guys, how's it going? And he'd go, we're having hard fun. And Ah. that's exactly what starting BBH New York was, hard fun.
1: After all of the promotions, all of the accolades in September of 2004, you gave up the title of BBH New York president to become chairman of the New York office and chief marketing officer of BBH globally. What made you decide to do that?
3: That wasn't me deciding to do that. That was the management proposing that. Partly, I think, because I had always very much enjoyed and actually had a particular point of view on the fact that, ironically, agencies are very bad at branding and marketing themselves. Why is you know, that? It's, it's that classic <laughs> thing of the cobbler's children have no yeah. shoes. Yeah. And, and actually, it's a huge shame, Debbie, because my industry is jam-packed full of brilliant, creative, intelligent, articulate people who spend all of that brilliance, creativity, and intelligence, articulacy, focused 24-7 on their clients' business and never lift their noses from the grindstone and focus it on themselves. If they had done, we might have redesigned the industry and the industry's business model and been a very different industry today. When you think about it, advertising is the only industry where we don't get to brand our own output. Mm. Everything else that somebody creates – is very clearly branded as being from them except advertising. Advertising is for our clients' products and you never see the name of the agency on the product. And unfortunately, that extends to clients' willingness to give agencies credit for their work. And and by the way, this is unthinking on on the client's part because agencies don't insist on this – And so one of the things I was very focused on at BBH was how we branded and marketed ourselves, how we got credit for our work. I mean, every client who's going to give a public talk, you know, I I would say to the team that worked with that client, can you just you know, say to her or him, can you make sure on stage that you credit us by name when you show our work? Literally, you have to do that. And so I was very interested in the whole idea of branding and marketing the agency itself.
1: You spent seven years running the New York office, and in that time, you grew the agency from a mere handful of employees to a company with more than 100 accounts. After 16 years, you resigned from the chief marketing officer role. What made you decide to do that?
3: So I turned 45 back in 2005, and I had my very own personal midlife crisis in the sense that I'd always thought of 45 as a midlife point. You should pause, take stock, reflect, and review – so on February 1, 2005, I did that. And that was the point at which I went, oh, my God, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. Wonderful agency, love them to death, BBH, cannot say enough nice things about them. But I went, I think it might be time to do something different. And then the problem was I hadn't the faintest idea what. So vast amounts of thought and angsting ensued. And eventually I went, if I want to review every possible option open to me for what is effectively the second half of my life, Maybe the best thing to do is to put myself on the market very publicly and go, OK, guys, here I am. What do you got? See what comes. So I took a massive leap into the unknown. I resigned as chairman of BBH in the summer of 2005 without a job to go to. And it was the best bloody thing I ever did in my life.
1: What did you do immediately after? How do you transition mm-hmm. from being in such a powerful professional position to now being completely on your own?
3: Well, I was enormously lucky because many things came to me. Like what? Oh, just approaches from different companies, different people. And so I went, okay, I still don't know what I, what I want to do. I'm going to be employment slut. I'm going to talk to everybody. I'm going to take <laughs> every phone call. I'm going to do every meeting. No preconceived notions. And so I went to this very interesting exploratory, which was as good for telling me what I didn't want to do as what I did want to do. Because I would come out of a meeting, an interview, and I would go – OK, so now I know in 50 million years, no wonder that. <laughs> and, and um, you know, from there, really, everything I've done subsequently has been a complete and total accident.
1: In your 2009 TED Talk, you launched your Make Love Not Porn website, and you've stated that the goal of Make Love Not Porn is to provide more realistic information about human sexuality than that provided by hardcore pornography. So talk about what made you decide to do this, how you're doing it now, and what the response has been.
3: Make Love Not Porn really was a total accident. Um, it came out of direct personal experience. I date younger men who tend to men in their 20s. And about nine or 10 years ago, I began realizing through dating younger men that I was encountering what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. That results in porn becoming, by default, the sex education of today in not a good way. Right. So I decided something about that, and eight years ago, I put up on No Money this tiny, clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that is Porn World versus Real World. Had the opportunity to launch it at TED. and the only TED speaker to have uttered the words, come on my face on the TED stage, six times succession. <laughs> Talk went viral instantly.
1: I wonder and, why.
3: <laughs> and it drove an extraordinary response to my tiny, clunky website that I had never anticipated. I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. And so I saw an opportunity for something that I believe in very strongly, which is that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. I saw the opportunity for a big business solution to this huge untapped global social need. So what I decided to do was I always emphasize make love not porn is not anti-porn because the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. And why not? Why don't we? Three reasons, actually. The first is centuries of repression, religion, social-cultural dynamics in every country in the world. This issue is the same everywhere globally. The second is the patriarchy because historically every institution has been male-dominated, including um, religion, government, and women have not had the opportunity to bring their lens to bear on sex and sexuality. So 50% of the human experience has been missing from the way that we have operate around it. And thirdly, there aren't enough people like me. And by that I mean society makes it extraordinarily difficult to innovate and disrupt cultural narratives around sex. Many people have tried and given up because of the huge barriers you face. You need people like me who will not stop no matter what. So what is the
1: type of porn that you think is more conducive to real life?
3: I'm doing something that is... Um, not porn. So at porn.tv, we are building the world's only social sex platform. We are socializing sex uh, to make it socially acceptable and socially shareable. Our tagline at Make Love Not Porn is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. And our mission is one thing only, which is to help make it easier for the world to talk about sex. Talk about sex openly and honestly in the public domain, by which I mean parents to kids, teachers to schools, you know, everyone to everyone. And equally importantly, talk about sex openly and honestly privately in your intimate relationships. And so what I decided to do, therefore, was take every dynamic that exists out there in social media and apply them to the one area no other social network or platform is going to go in order to socialize sex. And to make real-world sex and talking about it socially acceptable and therefore ultimately just as socially shareable as anything else we share on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram – So four years ago, my team and I launched the first stage of this vision. We have a whole roadmap for the future. But the first stage is makelovenotporn.tv, which is an entirely user-generated, crowdsourced video sharing platform that celebrates real-world sex. So anyone from anywhere in the world can submit videos of themselves having real-world sex. And we're very clear what we mean by this. We're not porn. We're not amateur. We're building a whole new category online that has never previously existed, social sex. So our competition isn't porn, it's Facebook and YouTube, or rather it would be if Facebook and YouTube allowed sexual self-expression and self-identification, which they don't. So social sex videos that make love not porn are not about performing for the camera. They're just about doing what you do on every other social platform, which is capturing what goes on in the real world as it happens in all its funny, messy, wonderful, beautiful, ridiculous, spontaneous, glorious humanness. We curate to make sure of that. And we have a revenue-sharing business model. We're part of the sharing economy, like Uber and Airbnb. You pay to rent and stream social sex videos, and half that income goes to our contributors, or as we call them, our make-love-not-porn stars. (laughs) Because we want our make-love-not-porn stars one day to be as famous as YouTube stars for the same reasons, authenticity, realness, individuality. And we want them to make just as much money. How do you think watching porn of any
1: sort changes or influences intimacy?
3: Again, the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex. So many things are laid at porn's door that should be laid instead at society's. It is not porn's job to educate about sex. Porn is entertainment. It is society's job to open up to talking openly and honestly about sex in order to encourage and facilitate far better human sexual relationships. Because here's the issue— because we don't talk about sex, it is an area of rampant insecurity for every single one of us all around the world, no exceptions. We all get very vulnerable when we get naked. Sexual ego is very fragile. People therefore find it bizarrely difficult to talk about sex with the people they're actually having it with while they're actually having it. Because you are terrified in that situation that if you say anything at all about what is going on, you will potentially hurt the other person's feelings, you'll put them off you, You'll derail the encounter, you'll potentially derail the entire relationship, but at the same time, you want to please your partner. You want to make them happy. Everybody wants to be good in bed. Nobody knows exactly what that means. And so you will seize your cues on how to do that from any way you can. If the only cues you've ever seen were given from porn, because your parents never talked to you, your school didn't speak to you, your friends aren't honest, those are the cues you'll take to not very good effect. And so Porn in the abstract is a very useful concept for helping you explore your sexuality, discover there are other people like you, but it is no substitute and never should be for open, honest dialogue around sex. And by the way, what we do at Make Love Not Porn in socializing sex is more important now than ever before. Because in a world where grabbing women by the pussy is presidentially endorsed, The reason for opening up around sex, talking more freely about sex, is to encourage good sexual values. Many of us, if we're fortunate, are born into families and environments where our parents bring us up to have good manners, a work ethic, a sense of responsibility, accountability. Nobody ever brings us up to behave well in bed. But they should, because there, empathy, sensitivity generosity, kindness, honesty are as important as they are in every other area of our lives and our work where we are actively taught to exercise those values. Make Love Not Porn exists to open up the dialogue around sex, to encourage and promote good sexual values. When we are open enough to teach children good sexual values from day one, to have the whole of society understand what good sexual values are and that there is a standard of behavior everyone should be adhering to, we cease to bring up Brock Turner's the Stanford rapist. We end rape culture. When we take the shame and embarrassment out of sex, as Make Love Not Porn is working to, when we normalize sex, we end sexual harassment, sexual abuse, sexual violence, all things where the perpetrators rely on the shame and embarrassment we've imbued sex with to make sure their victims never speak up, are too ashamed and embarrassed to say anything, and will never tell on them.
1: I read that your main mission now is to get funding for Make Love Not Porn TV in an effort to get advertisers, marketers, and the media to understand that sexuality can be a legitimate tactic for reaching consumers. Do you have any examples of where or how this has been done successfully?
3: Um, no. <laughs> so, um, so actually, I'm glad you, you asked me that question, because I have a couple of pieces of news on this front, Ooh,
1: good. Um, which
3: you may find interesting. Um, so the first has to do with the fact that I've been working for the past two years to try and raise $2 million in funding to enable Make Love Not Porn to scale. And I have failed to raise that money. Our biggest obstacle raising funding is the social dynamic that I call fear of what other people will think. Because it is never what the person I'm talking to thinks. When you understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, nobody can argue with it. The business case is clear. It is always their fear of what they think other people think, which operates around sex more than another area. So I realized very early on that um, I was going to have to pave my own way. I have to break down the business barriers in my own path if I want to scale Make Love Not Porn to be the billion-dollar startup I know it can be. So I am doing what I tell other entrepreneurs to do, which is when you have a truly world-changing startup – You have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. Several years ago, I deliberately began defining, pioneering, and championing my own category, sex tech. I literally wrote the post on sex tech. And sex tech, by the way, is any technology or tech venture designed to innovate, disrupt, and enhance in any area of human sexuality and human sexual experience. I talk about um, the fact the next big thing in tech is disrupting sex at tech conferences to get the tech and business world to open up their minds. And when I consistently, despite talking about the benefits and the huge investment potential of this area, still couldn't raise the funding for Make Love Not Porn, I went, OK, I'm going to have to take this to the next level. And so, alongside raising $2 million for Make Love Not Porn, I'm now raising $10 million to fund the world's first sex tech incubator accelerator holding company and fund, because nobody else is. Wow. And my sex tech fund and holding company is called All The Sky. You can find us at alltheskyholdings.com. And what I want to do is to be able with this fund to fund radically innovative sex tech ventures with an emphasis on those that come from women. The most innovative, disruptive things in sex today are coming from female founders. Women challenge the status quo because we are never it. We are finally owning our sexuality, finding unique ways to leverage it. And as I like to say regularly, there is a huge amount of money to be made out of taking women seriously, especially in this area. There is a colossal market in women's needs, wants and desires historically deemed too embarrassing, shameful or taboo to address in business. And by the way, when you tap into that huge primary market, you also tap into a huge secondary market of extremely happy men. (laughs) So, and then the other thing we're doing is we have just launched our first ever crowdfunding campaign for Make Love Not Porn. And it's our first ever because historically crowdfunding has been forbidden to us. I was going to say
1: the banks. Aren't banks really... Particular about funding sexually oriented endeavors?
3: Well, there are two separate issues. So um, there's the issue that every piece of business infrastructure, any other startup can take for granted, we can't because the small print always says no adult content. And so that is all pervasive across every area of the business in ways that people don't realize. Can't get funded, can't get banked, can't put payments in place. You know, every tech service, the TOS say no adult content. But then separate to that, crowdfunding platforms are also no adult content. So Kickstarter won't take adult content. Other crowdfunding platforms draw an artificial distinction between sex toys fine, people having sex on video not fine. And so I was delighted when several weeks ago, Karen Khan launched a new crowdfunding platform called Women. You can find it at ifundwomen.com. It's dedicated to female-founded ventures. And so when I knew she was doing this, I reached out to her and I said tentatively, will you take Make Love Not Porn? And she wrote back and went, oh, my God, I've been a member since day one. I love you guys. Come on over. (laughs) And so I'm thrilled to say um, that we are on iFundWomen. I would love people to help crowdfund the social sex revolution, as we call ourselves. And incidentally, I have deliberately made a number of the rewards access to me you can get an, an hour on Skype with me, you know, giving you business advice or life coaching, whatever. And so um, help us help you, basically. That's fantastic, Cindy. Best, best of luck with that. Thank you. You
1: have stated, and you've mentioned it here on the show as well, that you're very public about the fact that you date younger men. Uh, that you never wanted to be married, never wanted to have children. You're also fearless about telling everyone that you are 56 and have stated that you consider yourself a proud member of one of the most invisible segments of the population, older women. So I have two questions for you. Why do you want everybody to know and why are women over 50, which includes me, by the way, uh, one of the most invisible segments of the population?
3: So first of all, I'm very public about all of those things because... We don't have enough role models in our society for both women and for men that demonstrate you can live your life in a very different way to the way society expects you to and still be extraordinarily happy. And so, you know, I want to demonstrate in the way I live my life that it is absolutely possible to pause and question whether marriage really is for you, whether children are for you, you know, whether even relationships are for you. I'm utterly ecstatic about the fact that I'll die alone. Fantastic. Fantastic. And then, you know, on the older women front, it's a fact of life, unfortunately, that in a society where the male lens operates on particularly so much of popular culture, including my own industry advertising, that is the lens through which women's value is only perceived in terms of their sexual attractiveness. And once you go past a perceived male lens sell by date, you are no longer relevant in any way at all. And incidentally, I've absolutely experienced this where I have Sat in meetings or on tables at events where I've seen men's eyes skate over me because I am completely irrelevant to anything they could possibly want to engage in me for.
1: So where is the construct Mm. coming from? Is it coming from porn itself where you are expected to look a certain way and behave a certain way? Uh, No,
3: it's coming from the patriarch and it's coming from a male-dominated culture. 97% of all advertising agency creative directors are men only 3% of women. We are the primary consumers and purchasers of everything, yet we are played back to ourselves in advertising through the male gaze. No wonder 90% of women say that advertising doesn't understand them. Well, I
1: know your goal is a 50-50 gender balance in the field of advertising, and you've said anytime there's just one woman, one Hispanic, one African-American in a role where there hasn't been a person like that before, means that that person becomes symbolic and representative of the many. And if the ratio is improved, then no one person is the female voice or the black voice or the Latina voice or the gay voice. Everyone can be free to agree or disagree, and everyone has influence How do you think that is going to change, if at all, based on the current election?
3: Well, I'm obviously utterly devastated at the election results, and I think we are rapidly going backwards, and that's already very, very visible. And so, you know, those of us who want to see a very different world have to work all the harder and fight all the more to make it happen. I am exasperated with the slow rate of change in my industry advertising, and so... I have spoken for the last five years at the 3% conference, Cat Gordon's conference, yep, which is called the 3% conference because of precisely what I just said. Only 3% of advertising agency credit directors are female. And, you know, I've spoken there over the years about the issue of gender inequality. I've spoken about um, ways in which we can make the industry more diverse. And by the way, I emphasize everything I say about gender diversity applies equally to diversity of race, ethnicity, sexuality, disability, and age. And this year, I just spoke a few weeks ago at the fifth 3% conference. and I said to the audience, I am completely fed up with the slow rate of change. I've just had it up to here. And so what I'm going to say to you now is women, people of color in the industry, if you are working somewhere that does not welcome what you uniquely bring to the table, that does not celebrate, champion, value and reward your unique creativity, skills and talents, if you are someone that does not allow you to innovate and disrupt in the way that you want to, get the fuck out. I said, I want you to be the future advertising and start your own agency. And here is now your 10 point action plan on exactly how to do that.
1: Let's talk about social media and the need to change. You've been incredibly vocal on Twitter and Facebook and have stated social media is simply a new methodology that allows women to do what we've been doing since the dawn of time, which is sharing the shit out of everything in a way that men don't. And earlier this year, you were incensed when former Saatchi and Saatchi chairman Kevin Roberts declared in a Business Insider interview that the gender debate in the ad industry was fucking over. And you mobilized your audience to respond. And in many ways, this is why Kevin Roberts is now the former chairman of Saatchi. Cindy, I cannot honestly believe that Kevin said that in the first place. What was he thinking?
3: Just so your audience is aware of the sequence of events, interestingly, I wasn't incensed to begin with, because what happened was it was a Friday morning and Laura O'Reilly from Business Insider emailed me and she said, um, we've just interviewed Kevin Roberts, the chairman of Search and Sarchi Worldwide. And he said this about you. And she pulled out purely his quote about me, which you may recall was along the lines of, you know, um, Laura sent this email, asked him about diversity and, and the fact that you talk about that, And he went, Cindy out's making it all up. You know, she's doing it to promote herself. You know, she's got problems around her own making so it's just this one. Um, she did not share the whole interview with me. So I didn't know what else he'd said at that point. And I just thought, well, oh, for God's sake. And she said, um, before we published the interview, we thought it was only fair to give you a chance to respond. And by the way, I was very startled because I'd only met Kevin Roberts two or three times in my entire advertising career; He'd always been effusively nice to me. So, you know, when I get um, an approach like that, I just wrote back to her and I said – you know, I think the best response is, rather than hearing it from me, um, I would open that one up to the industry. And I would just say to the men and women of the advertising industry globally, tweet at KR Connect, handle, and let them tell him whether they think I'm making it all up. And so I sent that back and I just thought that was another piece of, you know, the classic shit you get about gender equality in advertising. And I didn't think very much more of it. And then, as you know, all hell broke loose. And that (laughs) took off, that escalated in a way that I had never anticipated when I gave that response. But to your point, you're right. It is an extraordinary indictment of the lack of change in our industry that an old white guy in advertising could say that to a journalist Everything he said about, you know, men have vertical ambition versus women have circular ambition, that could say it, knowing it would be published and think that was perfectly okay. I I, I
1: don't know what he could have been thinking. And it really it heartened me to know that PepsiCo's Brad Jakeman, DDB's Wendy Clark, JP Morgan, Chase's Kristen Lemkow all came out in support of his being wrong. And Kevin Roberts resigned. When he resigned, uh, you let Saatchi know you were available as long as they paid you the same salary they were paying him, $4.1 million a year.
3: What was their response? Um, Non-existent, (laughs) uh, which, by the way, is very bad behavior, because I was asked for a statement when Kevin Roberts resigned, and I said, um, I note that Saatchi and Publicist Group now have a vacancy for a leadership coach. I'd (laughs) I'd like to offer my services. And just that there is no suggestion at all of lack of gender parity on the wage front, I'd be happy to do it on the same salary as Kevin Roberts, which is $4.1 million. And Sartre Publishers has never responded at all. Mm. Extraordinary.
1: It is extraordinary. The last thing I want to talk to you about is a podcast you did recently with Forbes, and you hosted a series of 4A's webinars titled The Glass Ladder wherein you helped give women actionable advice on how to ask for raises, how to position themselves for promotions, and how to be seen as leaders within their agencies and creative departments. I'd like to talk to you about a few of the things that you said on the podcast. You said, never give away anything for free. Why do women do that?
3: Oh, because we are taught to undervalue ourselves from the moment we're born. And so, you know, a lot of my coaching work is about absolutely getting women to realize that people value you at the value you seem to put in yourself. And in fact, you know, the more highly you value something, the more highly everybody else will value it as well. So it's it's enormously important. Nobody values anything they get for free.
1: You also say be totally unashamed about wanting to make a shit ton of money. And you talk about how women are not brought up to think about money the same way that men are. What is the difference in the way we are conditioned to think about money?
3: Well, the really depressing thing is that, you know, boys are brought up as men go to work and earn money. And it's what you do. And you want to make as much money as possible. And here, inherently, in all the culture around you, all the things you need to be thinking about to do that. Women are brought up to think that a man is a financial strategy. You get married and that's it. And that is fatal, utterly fatal. I mean fortunately there are many female entrepreneurs out there now building platforms and businesses that are about absolutely eradicating that, educating women. But um, the key message that I put out from my side is as women, we don't get taken seriously until we get taken seriously financially. And so women, you owe it to the rest of us to absolutely be determined to make. And you're right. I like to put it as an absolute god I'm fucking shit ton of money. Okay, because that's how much money I want you to make. And it's very important for several reasons. So I say to women, you know, in every single pay review, every single job interview, you've got to argue for the highest possible salary. And my advice is ask for the highest amount you can utter out loud without actually bursting out laughing. (laughs) Now, separate to the obvious benefit to you, there is a very key importance of this because – When the senior management of your company in the C-suite look down that Excel spreadsheet of all the salaries in the companies, when they see that women are paid less than men, what that translates to in their mind is women less good than men. As long as we're all putting up with lower salaries, what it is saying to management and business is that we are less good than men. So it's very important you get to set her up as high as possible to prevent that. And then secondly, you've got to make a huge amount of money so that you can then invest it in the rest of us female founders and help women build businesses and rise on the shoulders of women to get to where we all want to be together.
1: You alluded before to the fear of what other people think being the single most paralyzing dynamic in business and life. I know that I am often paralyzed by that very, very thought. What will somebody think? And I feel ashamed about something that I want to do or something that I wish that I could achieve. What advice can you give anyone listening to this podcast about how to move forward in life without that obstacle standing in your way?
3: The only way to live your life is not give a damn what anybody thinks. Now, I know it's a lot easier to say that than to do it. And so I encourage people to think about this a different way. Everything in life starts with you and your values. And people don't do this often enough. Look into yourself and identify who you are, what you stand for, what you believe in, what you value. Decide what your values are and then operate according to them. And by the way, when you do that, it makes life so much easier because life still throws you all the shit it always will, but you know exactly how to respond to any given situation in a way that is true to you. That way you are only ever operating doing things that are true to you, and that is what matters, not what other people think of you. Many people are living lives that they don't really want to be living. They're doing things they don't really want to be doing. They are in relationships they don't really want to be in because of what other people think. You will never live the life that you really want to live if you care what other people think and you will never be truly happy if you care what other people think. So know who you are, know what you want to do, live accordingly and do not give a damn what anyone else thinks. Cindy Gallup,
1: thank you so much for being such a fierce, fabulous warrior and thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
3: Thank you for having me here, Debbie. I've I've been thrilled to be a part of this.
1: To find out more about Cindy Gallup, visit her website, cindygallop.com. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.